From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Ricky Itzgoods, and on today's show, how a savvy kid from a less than ideal situation reinvented herself time and time again, and went on to become a highly respected marketing expert, who I personally have learned a lot from. S.C. Rand is a thoughtful, intentional person. Unfortunately, those skills were developed as a result of a difficult home environment. Throughout her life, she's been able to recognize when to run and when to stay, along the way building a beautiful family and business. I grew up actually in Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York. Very nice. So what did you do there? Were your parents, you know, were they, was your mom always home? Did you have a lot of things going on? What did your parents do? Uh, okay. So my dad was a diamond dealer, actually working on 47th street. So theoretically he was an entrepreneur, but more of like in the brokerage, right? So diamond dealers are just brokers. That's what they are. Um, and my mom worked for such an interesting kind of company. I don't even think they exist anymore, but it was called government data publishing. It was basically like a, a very micro publishing house that published government contracts. Um, so it was a lot of like proofreading, copy editing. Um, she worked flex time. So she'd work a lot at nights. She would always like see us off in the mornings. She wasn't always there when we came home, but not because she was at work. Oh, I hear what you mean by that. So, you know, just doing all the errands. Other- yeah. Shopping. Right. Like we, always, we had a babysitter in the afternoons, um, but I think it's because she worked in the daytimes. Okay. I hear that. That was actually pretty similar to how I grew up. My mom also had a really flexible hours. What were you like as a kid? Were you always someone who was a go-getter or more on the shy side? <sighs> okay. So I don't, I don't talk about this a lot, but none of my story will make sense if I don't. Um, I came from a severely abusive environment. Um, so I, I don't think I was shy. I think I was just damaged by what I went through. And so I definitely was more to myself, definitely lacked social skills. Um, I was also young for my grade. And so even though my intellect was totally on par with my peers, if not above, my emotional intelligence and social intelligence was not. So definitely, for sure, through all of elementary school and even kicking off into high school, more on the awkward side. Do you think that being awkward kind of allowed you to observe what other people were doing? Like, do you think there were benefits to that, to being a little bit on the outside? I mean, there are definitely benefits. You know, for me now, I don't have a problem being different. I don't have a problem if people don't like something I do um, because I spent a whole lot of years like that. I I never was in an environment where like everyone had to like me and I had to fit in because I just didn't. So looking back, I could say it benefited me tremendously, but when you're in it, oh, it was horrible. Oh yeah, I'm sure that, yeah, I I had a somewhat similar experience with some pretty intense bullying. And that was something that I felt like always set me separately from everyone else. Um, But in a way that allowed me to be so, I mean, it sounds weird to say it, but I was really methodical about how I made friends because I needed to kind of actively pursue people. And that's definitely a skill that 
I use now in, you know, in my job and in, and in what I do. So what I'm curious to hear from you is that obviously that's not fun going through it, um, but can you let everyone know a little bit more about what, what you do now and maybe how some of the things that were not so fun when you were going through them maybe helped you take, you do what you do now? For sure. So what I do now is I help business owners earn more money with less headache. And it's super fun. So I'm kind of on a mission. I just want everyone to do what they love, earn buckets of money, and have time for their life and family. Kind of have that. To me, that's kind of that fully balanced life, if you will. So I have a full service consulting firm. Anything you'd imagine like a Fortune 500 company gets from a Deloitte McKinsey type, we do for micro businesses. Typically solopreneurs to like mid-sized 20, 30 person companies, really focused in that space where people are just growing and building a business they can live on and live in. So we do business strategy, marketing strategy, expansion plans. We now have online courses and programs. It's super fun. Um, one of the skills that I know I got from growing up is one of the things I had to do is very much compartmentalize. Um, and it's only in very recent years that I even started telling people even bits of my story. Growing up, nobody knew. So it was kind of like I had, you know, what went on at home in one box and what went on in school in another box and very, very separate. And so that's definitely a skill set I've carried with me because I now less because we have so much going on in the company and we have other strategists. But for years, I was working with 20, 30 different clients at a time. And I could do 10, 12 different meetings in a day, straight through my day. And every time I'm with a client, I'm only with them. And some of them would even say to me like, Esty, am I your only meeting today? I'm like, you wish. <laughs> I have like 11 other people on my calendar today. Um, and like, but I feel like you're so here. And that ability to be so fully present in each situation from having to segment my life early on definitely a skill set that that I gained that I know not a lot of people have. What is something that you do to help you compartmentalize? Because that's a really useful skill. You know, a lot of people talk about that with work-life balance even, where it's, you know, you can't be everywhere at once, but when you're home, be 100% home. When you're at work, be 100% at work. And I know that that's something that I definitely have. I struggle with, you know, kind of putting the office away or not worrying about something that's going on at home while I'm at work. So what's, what's one kind of practical thing that you think uh, people can benefit from? Totally. So setting the boundaries in advance as much as possible. So for example, like my kids know if they need me at work, 100% call me. My husband knows too. They also know I'm in meetings all day. And if it isn't something timely or urgent, don't call me. <laughs> when I'm at work, I'm at work. Like this is not the time I'm available to schmooze or just chat with you. Um, this is not when you want to be like, hey, you know, did you remember to pick up the dry cleaning? Like, you want to do it, send me a message. I'm in my meetings all day. I'm fully focused on my work. So giving people that pre-frame. And when I'm home, my cell phone goes in a closet. My computer's never open. Um, I don't touch it. If I do, it means I literally have to sneak over to the closet and look in my phone. It's not out. It's not around. My ringer's actually been off since I had my last kid. He's now two years old. I remember I turned the ringer off when he was an infant because it bothered him. And mm -hmm. I never turned it back on. I'm like, I don't need to hear this. <laughs> I don't need to interrupt my life. So that to me is a, a preset boundary, if you will, right? So like, and I, I tell my clients, I am not available from this time to this time. So now I'm in the office a little later, but when I was doing 
um, for the first like nine and a half years of my business, like I was working, you know, as they call it between carpools, right? I drop the kids off in the morning, pick, I have five children, I pick them up in the afternoon. And I only worked when I was not with them. And then I'd work again when they went to bed at night. And so I would tell my clients, listen, I'm not a cardiologist. Okay. You can't reach me. You won't die. You'll just wait a couple hours. And so from whenever I'd pick the kids up, let's say four o'clock until when they went to bed, eight, 9 PM, I just wasn't around and you won't die. It's okay. It can wait till the morning. Yeah. Well, I would work every night anyways. So. And, okay. And, well, it can wait for a few hours then. Exactly. And you know what? Truthfully, it probably could wait till the morning. Um, and the truth is we've had, you know, sometimes we do launches with our clients where they're launching a new service, new business, new product. Like, um, so sometimes it is time sensitive, still not an emergency. Right. I like how you say that. Like no one's going to die. You're not a cardiologist. Exactly. It will, we will make through this. That's actually a really great perspective to have. So I want to go backwards a little bit now. So you were a little bit of an awkward kid kind of throughout high school, you said? No. So throughout elementary school. So high school is really funny. When I was about, uh, I think I, I started finding my zone when I was like ninth, 10th grade already. And then when I was towards the end of my junior year in high school, I remember looking at the cool kids and being like, I want to be one of you. Like it can't be that hard. And so kind of what you were saying, power of observation, like I just kind of studied them and was like, okay, how are we going to do this? Um, and um, I became one of them. <laughs> I feel like I was never fully exactly the same, but they became some of my absolute best friends um, still today. And uh, so I would say I got to be cool by my senior year. Okay. That's nice. Cool is always a fun thing. Yeah, because I always wanted to be, right? I always watched the class. I'm like, what is the difference? Like, I remember in sixth grade, we got two new girls in our class. And one became one of my really good friends, one of the like, you know, slightly awkward crew. And one became part of like the cool clique. You, know, you just know. You know who right. the cool clique is in your school. Like, you For just sure. And, and I remember as a sixth grader, like, because I was always one of these deep thinkers, being like, what is the difference between these two people? They both, so there's no, cause there's no pre-frame, right? They both joined our school at the exact same time, came into the exact same environment. And yet one became cool and one became not cool. How does this work? And I was literally studying this for all the years from the time I was a kid. How does cool work? <laughs> what makes someone cool? Um, and, uh, and I think there's two things. You, you want to know what I, I kind of think I figured out? Let's hear Okay. So one of the things, which I think is what makes someone genuinely quote unquote cool is a certain level of self-confidence and self-assurance. Um, and I see it like, even though I told you I have five kids, one of my kids is just naturally cool. It's the, it's the quote unquote coolest thing, pun intended. <laughs> um, I don't even know where he came from, right? Cause not all of them came out like this, but he just, he's naturally cool. Like he has a certain way he wears his clothing, like what he says, but I'm watching him. He has a certain level of self-confidence and self-assurance that like, he's just good. He's just good. People just want to be around him. He's got a great energy. I think that's, that's kind of one secret. There are people who are naturally cool because they're just so comfortable with who they are. They have a certain natural leadership and, and that's, that's kind of one direction. And then on the split, you have the people who are really, really insecure actually, and they have to belong. And so they are constantly on the lookout for how to conform and they conform so well that they're always part of whatever they're conforming to. And this hit me when I was in high school, one of the cool girls that I had become friends with when I had, you know, become cool, quote unquote, um, 
I remember she said to me, okay, we're literally going back to high school here, but she's like, Esty, will you walk with me to the candy machine, like down the hall? And I remember being like, sure, but why? <laughs> like, because remember me, like I could go anywhere by myself. I used to rollerblade around the neighborhood. I'd go eat pizza out by myself. Like I didn't care. And she's like, oh, I don't go anywhere by myself. And I was dumbfounded. I was just like, that is part of what makes you cool. You're never alone, but you're never alone because if you were alone, you wouldn't go anywhere. I just- I feel like you just untangled all of my like high school drama. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like as you're saying this, I'm like, oh, I know those people. And I, oh, and I know those people and you're, you're so right. There's something about for sure. Confidence attracts, it just attracts people when people don't feel like they need to complete you when people don't feel like, oh, you know, she's, she's good with how she is. She's good with how, you know, she's, she's fine. If she wants me, you're great, but I don't need to be there to complete her. Then yeah, that for sure attracts people. And that, and I know so many people like that. And um, on the flip side, it's like, you're right. There are some people who just can't be alone. And because they can't be alone, they are popular because they just right. create and they a situation. always belong. Correct, because they'll only do something if they do. For my my poor little teenage brain, it was just such a revelation. It sits with me still to today. So powerful that when you see someone and you're like, oh, they're so popular, they're always with friends. Maybe it's because when they're not, they won't go anywhere. Right. Like they they literally don't know how to exist with themselves. Right. Yikes. Mind blowing. Yeah, really. Like yeah. I do a lot of human psychology. I'm a marketer. And to me, marketing is mostly psychology, like 95%. So when you understand people and how they think and how they operate, that's all of selling. Right. I, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. So you're in high school. You are now one of the cool kids. Um, if you don't mind my asking, was it still a shaky home situation? Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm lucky to be alive. Where um, it, was, nah, it was never never better than it was bad. Okay. So then did you like go away to college immediately to remove yourself from that? Uh, so no, I actually didn't. So different levels of abuse are different to people. So the more severe it is actually the less likely you are to leave it because you don't know anything different and you think what you go through is what's correct, right? It's, it's all there is. It's all you know. Um, and I've, I've studied extensively. And one of the things that that I will definitely be doing at some stage is, you know, investing in different organizations. And I have, I have already, but I have dreams of, of building certain organizations to service, you know, abused women, children, things like that. Um, and in specific ways that I'm not seeing done yet out there, but I'm involved. And one of the things people don't realize when they meet someone in an abusive situation, whether adult or, or child is they're like, well, get out of there. You don't realize that that person, that's all they know. So however unpleasant it is, they don't imagine a different life. Um, I did run away from home uh, probably once or twice as a teenager, but never in like a super serious way. More in like, a, I need to get out of there. And then, you know, I got drawn back in. But what I did do when I graduated, so I had planned to go to university um, in Manhattan. I was registered. And then a lot, so I'm Jewish, Orthodox Jewish. And I a lot of my peers were going to do a gap year study in Jerusalem. I go into a religious seminary. So I, I grew up, I guess you'd call it, we call it in the community, modern Orthodox. And I know it's just like hard for people to understand the different levels. Judaism is not that widespread, but like, let's say in Orthodoxy, which is like the most observant form of Judaism, 
lots of different quote unquote rules, strong God presence in your life. So let's say there's like, you know, levels one to five, right? So I grew up at like a level two let's say. Um, now I kind of live at a level four and a half. So life's really interesting, but I grew up at like a level two and definitely in my teenage years, I just threw it all off. Like I was not interested. I was like, I don't need this. Right. Especially coming from an environment where the, you know, religious parents, leaders, whatever you want to call them, um, were really horrible people. Um, I was not interested in this as a a life path for myself. However, being offered a free year of study abroad with no parents and no anybody watching me, now that was appealing. So I actually went to Jerusalem for a year to study. So, so that got me out um, and it completely changed my life. For the first time, I met people who lived a life of truth, who lived a life of passion, who lived a life of what I could only call righteousness. And again, coming from what I feel was uh, depraved is too strong of a word. It's not so nice. But low. Okay. People who are hypocritical, who did not live their truth, who were, who were not kind <laughs> to say the least. Um, going to Jerusalem and meeting people who were just inspired and inspiring and truthful and had beautiful, loving families. I was just like, I want this. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do with my life. And so I became super, super ultra Orthodox religious, like on fire. And um, my life has led really interestingly since then. Wow. So you, you were in this situation that was, to say the least, less than ideal. You end up, and, and in that less than ideal situation, this, this severely abusive environment, it only makes sense that you would kind of equate the, you know, the religion that your abuser subscribed to with abuse, because that's you know, those are your models and that's what you live by. And then you go off to Jerusalem and you have this completely opposite experience where now this same kind of body of thinking, the same kind of body of thought is tied to, like you said, passion and, um, you know, family and, and all of those things. That experience, that, I guess, mind shift must have been completely overwhelming yeah. And I'll tell you more than that. I'm a very spiritual person. I always have been like, I believe in God. We can't make ourselves breathe as advanced as science get. They cannot create life. There's something very obviously beyond us in this universe. And I never believe different. Listen, I really am lucky to be alive. And I know that. So I know that if there was no higher power or other source in this universe, there is no reason that I should be here. Um, I've always known that, but I saw no spirituality in Judaism whatsoever. I saw it as extremely rule bound. And for me, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm, you know, I think rules are suggestions. Okay. That's kind of how I see them. And I always have. And so you give me this religion full of rules and I'm like, stuff it. I don't need this for anything. What do I need this for? Um, so I was just completely, so again, from a, to a certain stage, you know, you can quote unquote, inspire people through fear. You know, if you don't do this, you'll be forever damned. Like, yeah. Okay. It works to a certain point until you're a teenager and then you try something and no lightning bolt hit you. And you're like, ah, look, I'm okay. You know? Yeah. Life is long. I'll be all right. If I burn later, whatever. Right, we'll um, worry about it then. Exactly. I'll let my soul deal with it in the afterlife. Right now, I have a little fun to have. Thank you very right. much. Um, 
But what I found in Jerusalem was a spiritual source in Judaism, was the whole element of God connector, was an understanding of a greater reality. Um, now I do a lot of quantum physics, quantum mechanics, um, spiritual science. Like there's some really, really cool stuff out there that's not tied to any religion. It's universal. To me, all religions are, they essentially all look to the same source. It's just nuances in terms of the rules and the applications, uh, but the source is always the same. So I have friends from all different walks of life um, and finding that spirituality within my own religion that I had, you know, officially grown up in, uh, but it was such a different world. That's really what did it for me. People who, who connected to God in a certain way. And then what, what was kind of taught to me was Judaism as a framework for tapping into the spiritual. And that's what appealed to me more than anything else. That's what I really bought into. It was never the rules. The rules are still, they are what they are. <laughs> But if they're a framework for something bigger and better, that's what I went into. And it was overwhelming. It was completely insane. And, you know, I feel like I've reinvented myself quite a few times already, and I'm not that old. Um, in my late 30s, mid to late 30s at this point. And I feel like I've already lived five different lives. Each time, there's such a transition as you shift, and each time better than the last, right? So coming out of, you know, I feel like becoming cool was the first time I reinvented myself, quote unquote, in high school. The next time was definitely post my seminary studies in Jerusalem, where I came back and people were like, what in the world happened to you? <laughs> I'm like, I am holy now. <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to throw the water. No, wrong word. Like, <laughs> People thought I was absolutely batty. Um, I lost a lot of friends. I kept some, but I, I lost some. And again, the ones I lost, you know, they weren't true friends. They were friends on convenience, not on on deep connection, right? Anyone who I was really connected to deeply, we had different lifestyles and we still spent time together in a way that was comfortable for all of us. So it was it was a big deal. And then, you know, did it again when I got married, did it again when I started my business, did it again when I moved to Los Angeles five years ago. So, you know, it's just, just okay. Fun. Okay. Okay. Wait, stop. Pause, 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 uh, right pause. Right <laughs> pause, pause. Okay. So I'm backtracking. That's okay. Brain blown, but pausing from where you were right yeah. there for a second. Um, it's so, it's so interesting to me because most people who grow up in a, in an observant or in a religious environment, they either like, I find that people either connect to it or they don't. I also grew up in an observant a Jewish Orthodox home. And for me, it was like, there are people who I knew who were just like, I'm interested and they continue doing it either because of social pressure for whatever reason. And then there are people who were just like, no, not for me. And then just decided not to be religious. And there, and there are people, I, I find it so interesting that you were someone who found, who, who connected with the spiritual aspect of the religion and then kind of just made it your own from there. So you go to this, you go to this year in Jerusalem. You were there for one year. So it's also a funny story. I was there for a year and I desperately wanted to go back for another because I was so inspired, but I was so unstable. Um, not mentally, just in my newfound faith, if you will. Right. Coming from, you know, and, and also I was like, Hey, when I'm here, I'm not home. <laughs> like that's cool. <laughs> Um, but I do have two younger siblings and I had a very overdeveloped sense of responsibility as the oldest to like be there and protect them. So it made it more complex. But in any case, I wanted to go back for another year. I really wanted to go and just stay there forever, um, but at least I was going to take it one year at a time and, uh, and my parents wouldn't let, and again, still very tied to them, not only financially, but also emotionally um, because of the trauma. It's, it's, 
for anyone who's never been through it, it's, it's pretty complex. And I've done a lot of healing, let's just say that. And they didn't let me go back for my second year. So I spent, I went straight into university um, to start my business degree in New York. But I like cried and begged and prayed. And I got to go back middle of that second year for the second half year. So I, I was there, I guess you'd say for a year and a half. And in a way it was even more reinforcing because having to figure out how to try to be this new person in my old environment <laughs> made it, um, you know, a lot of people, you can be inspired by something. And when you're in that bubble, you can be that person. When you're out of that bubble, it's, it's a lot harder. So I got dropped out of my bubble immediately, got to try to be this new person that I had started to become in my original environment. And then I got to go back and solidify it. So I think that's also part of what, what made me me looking back at it. That's, that's a really great way to look at it. And I think that you're so right. There are so many people who have kind of like a, an awakening of sorts and then it lasts for maybe a year or two. And then they're right back at square one. And, and it's great that you've been able to kind of find a way that works in your life and in what you were doing. So when you were in university, you were going for a business degree, you said? Yes, I have a BBA. So it's a, a business bachelor's. Um, and just on the point of inspiration, I really think that it applies not only when you have these like massive experiences that are, you know, months or years at a time. Like I just spoke at a three-day conference out in Krakow, Poland, and it was amazing. So I was a participant in addition to a presenter. And it was almost like this little bubble. It was an amazing business conference, really inspiring, really powerful. And then I got back and I was like, whoa, what? Real life? What? And I think even as adults, we have these experiences. Sometimes it's a weekend or a conference or a vacation. You know, we have these things and, and it's the same thing. You know, we all have these moments of inspiration. I have a whole talk on this. And, and then we come back to reality as it were. And this dichotomy of who I was in that moment of inspiration versus who I am when I'm back where I was right before it. How do you integrate and, right. and I think for me, having to have done that in that way, I built those integration tools right away, which is, it's just one piece at a time. It's constantly remembering that that new version of you that you experienced in your moments of inspiration, that new version that you want to become you, it will, but you got to just take it one step at a time. You can climb any ladder you want, just not 14 rungs at a time. Right. It has to happen, you know, slowly one, one step at a time. And it's so interesting. A little tip that someone actually gave me once was I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts and, um, and taking online courses around, you know, e-commerce and marketing and all those kinds of things, uh, while I build my business. And, uh, some, a tip that I actually heard was that instead of taking notes while you're writing something, write down the actionable steps that you're going to take. So instead of writing down, you know, writing an email this way will make it more likely to create sales, write down an actionable step that is next newsletter should feature X, Y, and Z, you know, oh, I love that. kind of thing. And it makes, it makes lots feel better. of fun. I just did that to people this week. I just ran a webinar training for a friend of mine for one of her programs. And at the end of it, I said, listen, guys. Wherever you go from here, I just threw a ton of information at you. Listening to me is a little bit like drinking water from a fire hose. And <laughs> there are so many things here. So here's what I'm going to, I want you to do. Because it wasn't in person. In person, it's even stronger. I said, I want you to put in the chat, what is the one next action point you're going to take from what I just told you to do? Put it in the chat right now and then write it down on a piece of paper for yourself. What is that first step you're going to take to start implementing all that stuff I taught you? And so, yeah, exactly that. 
Yeah, it, it makes it a lot easier to take anything that you're learning, whether it's in something for your job, something in your personal life, something in your spiritual life, whatever it is, it just makes it so much easier to, you know, instead of just being like X, Y, and Z is a nice thing, write down do X, Y, and Z. And it it's just so, it is just so much simpler. Totally. And even books, like I'm a huge, huge um, reader and personal development and marketing. I read all psychology books because I think they're marketing textbooks, but a lot of personal development also. And it's the same exact thing. You read this book, you're like, yes. I want to be that person. And then you're like, okay, moving on. Right. (laughs) Next. (laughs) Exactly. And then it becomes shelf help instead of (laughs) self-help. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Shelf help. That's a, I'm going to steal that one. A lot of people, a lot of people have a lot of shelf help. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I'm going to steal that. I really like that phrase. Okay. So you're in, you're in university, you get your business marketing degree and then you... And then I go and I work for a Jewish leadership training organization in New York. And a couple months in, I go and get engaged and get married and move to live in Jerusalem. Oh, okay, cool. So less, um, less than a year after graduating university. So I graduate and I go and I interviewed at some of the biggest companies. I interviewed Bloomberg and I interviewed at, you know, different, just a whole bunch of corporate. But I was like, I was so on fire in my Judaism. I was like, I just want to teach and I want to inspire other people and I want people to live better lives. And I like, you know, interviewed at Bloomberg and I got all the way to like third stage interview. And I was just like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I, I can't. And, and technically, I obviously could have or I wouldn't have made it that far, but I couldn't. I was too, too driven to help, and I, it was too dry for me. My money is never enough. I've been running businesses since I was a kid, so I've always had side businesses, but I was still looking for a job because obviously I needed real money, right? Running your own business is just pocket change. Right. So, I, um, so I got a job at this Jewish organization doing marketing and PR for them and teaching and speaking. And I was lecturing and I was starting to travel and speak. And I met my husband and we, we both had spent time in Jerusalem. Both had really found it so inspiring. Both wanted to live there and really go and like drink the Kool-Aid proper. So that is, that is what we did. And I lived there for almost 10 years. Wow. Did- yeah. You know, it's it's pretty common for people to kind of live in Jerusalem within the Jewish community. It's pretty common for people to live there, you know, let's say for a year or two after they get married. If you are there for 10 years, that is a complete culture shift. There's a big difference between studying in some place and living in some place. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. That like was that, reinvention number four or three or whatever. I saw. Whatever number we're up to. Yeah. yeah. That must have been like a huge culture shock. Do you speak Hebrew fluently? I am fluent. Um, I pretty good with languages, I guess. And when I was studying there, I had Israeli relatives who I like hadn't even met before I, I spent my gap year out there. And I, I would go and do these fully immersive weekends in all Hebrew um, with Israeli relatives. And that was a big part of what, what helped. But then when I lived there, I worked for a multinational nonprofit. And a lot of our Project. A lot of the people that I managed were, let's say, in France or in South America or in FSU, former Soviet Union, and they didn't speak any English. They spoke Russian and Hebrew, French and Hebrew, Portuguese and Hebrew. So Hebrew was the common language. So I was forced to speak Hebrew a lot to hold meetings in all Hebrew. Um, and so yeah, no, my command of the language is quite high. 
That's great. I actually became fluent in exactly the same way. Um, I was I was in Jerusalem also for a year to study, and um, my father has a lot of relatives there who speak Yiddish and Hebrew, and I had no basis for Yiddish and a little bit of a basis for Hebrew, and they made really nice food, and I wanted to eat there, so I learned how to speak it. It was really that, <laughs> that simple. That it was, totally worked. Yeah, it was it was really that simple. So you live in Jerusalem for ten years. At this, by the time you're there, how many children do you have? So I had four of my five children in Jerusalem. I now have five. The first four were born there. One in LA now. Wow. So that means that your oldest is like Israeli. 13. At the, at the time of this recording, I have a 13-year-old. Wow. So that kid, like his, I like- So it's a girl. Or, or her, sorry, I should say. Um, <laughs> so she, she's Israeli. Like her She's childhood. not. We left. So we left Jerusalem. She was in second grade. She was eight years old. Oh, okay. Um, so she definitely has it on her. Um, I think partly in the way, like, I find her very not spoiled, to be honest. And I feel like there's a certain, and again, I, to stereotype and generalize in the extreme, right? But when you grow up in a country where so much is handed to you and so much is easy and, and you're catered to and driven around, it's just a bit of a different environment. Jerusalem is, it's a harsher land, Israel. It just is. The culture is harsher, not in a bad way, but kids, you know, seven years old are walking to school themselves for better or worse. They're helping out at home in different ways. They're indoctrinated. My daughter, when she was seven, they had an actual class in school as part of their main curriculum on street safety. They train the kids from when they're seven on street safety. We don't do that in America. No, we don't because we're with them all the time. Exactly. Exactly. And it's built in to the culture. They finish school earlier to help out at home with chores. It's part of the culture. It's completely different. And I right. feel like that she's definitely carried with her. Um, she's still fluent in Hebrew. She doesn't talk it, but she could if she wanted to. But other than that, she's, she's pretty much your average American kid. And that's very cool. So what made you leave? Uh, that was tough. Um, so I'll tell you. So when we're in Jerusalem, my husband was studying the whole time um, for the rabbinate. He is a rabbi. And people are like, SD, you're what? <laughs> people meet me. <laughs> They're just like, you're married to a rabbi? I'm sorry. One more time. <laughs> I really don't have to do with that. Um, but so he was studying for the rabbinate for most of the years that we were there. Um, and we got to the point where he was kind of looking at positions and looking at what he would do. And he's kind of, you know, in the Jewish world, the men are never done with their studies. The same way in the business world, like I'm never done with my business studies, right? So when you're studying for the rabbinate, you're never done, but like he was done, okay? And uh, he was looking and he wasn't finding anything in Israel that was really appealing, even though his Hebrew is even better than mine. Um, but culturally, like we're very American. Okay, he's Canadian. Right. Same idea. And it's the same thing. Uh, same, same, sorry, Canada. It's the same thing. Um, and so we started looking outside. You know, we're both kind of out of the box people. And this, the Jerusalem society, while it has nuances, there's a lot of conformity necessary um, if you really want to play the game. And, and like I said, I think rules are suggestions. <laughs> I have a hard time with them as a general. And so even though we were doing fine and our kids were integrating really well, we were kind of looking five, 10 years out and saying, you know, we don't know if us and our out of the box kids are going to really integrate in the society in the way they'll need to as they grow up. Um, and for him to look for job opportunity, we just weren't finding anything there. So 
we looked all over the world, honestly. We looked at something in Cape Town. We looked all across North America. Uh, we looked in parts of Europe. Like There were all different things going on. And in the end, we found something right outside of LA. And we have family and friends here. And I'd actually, we had been here a few years before for my nephew's bar mitzvah. And I just loved it. I was like, I like LA. And I'm not, it's not about the stuff or the glamour. That's so not me. It's much more about that the feeling I get in LA is that out of the box is mainstream. Everyone here is a little wacky, okay? Everyone here is like, you know, on their dream and on their vision and building this castle. And, and that energy of the city appealed to me so much. I, I really liked it. Somehow, even with all our research on the financials, it didn't quite compute that we live probably in the most expensive city, not just in America, but the world, but whatever. And so we settled here because we knew we had to leave. We, we decided it, wasn't, it just wasn't going to work for our family to, to continue raising the kids there. And for my husband, he wasn't finding like, his next thing there. So that's how you ended up in LA. In LA. And, and it, was, it was really hard to leave. I did not want to. It just... I kind of just knew it was what had to happen next. Okay. So it made sense for you. It made sense for your family. It made sense for where you were at that moment. I, yeah, I already had my business and I was already working internationally, multinationally. So for me, I could really work from anywhere. And that was going to be my next question. Did Strand Consulting happen in LA or it started in Jerusalem? It started in Jerusalem. Strand, okay. I'm here in LA five years and Strand is 10 years old. The first half of this company was there. Wow. So what was the feeling? What, why, like, why go into small business consulting? You're at this multinational nonprofit. I know that you were doing quite well there. I believe you were the CIO there, the innovation yeah. officer. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's not innovation, it's information, actually. Information. I managed Sorry. all of the databases and complex budgets and systems. Okay. So you're doing well. You're high up. You know, you, you have this great job and then you leave it to do small business consulting. Yes. That to me, I am a small business owner and I'm an entrepreneur and that sounds crazy to me. So yeah. explain, please tell me why. <laughs> so it was a little crazy. So it actually, it started a couple years even before it happened. That's the truth. Um, so even though I was at this job, they had a bit of a low glass ceiling. I'll be honest. It was, it was a fairly male dominated organization. I was one of very few females in a high level position and I kept bumping my head on the glass ceiling. Like I would say things that needed to be done. They'd be ignored. I would give, you know, directions sometimes and they would be reversed. Like it was again, and, and that was a, a small part. So it wasn't enough to make me not want to do the job, but it was like that undercurrent of frustration that I think many people have sometimes in their place of employment for various reasons. And, and at some point, the company hired a consulting firm to help them um, next level. And I, at being at the high level, would sit in on those meetings and work with the consulting firm. And they would give the exact same suggestions that I gave but they were getting paid more and getting listened to. And I knew they were getting paid more because I ran the budgets. Remember, I knew exactly what they were getting paid for the same advice that I was giving for way less money and getting ignored. And I'm like, I'm in the wrong line of work. Why am I not doing that? That so must that have been so frustrating. It was so frustrating, but I think it planted the seed because that was literally years before I left. But I think that's what planted the seed because I had no exposure to consulting before that. Um, but being in there and watching them do that and being like, I, I not only can I do this, I do do this. I just do it as an internal person in the company. But Apparently, if I was outside, I get paid more and get listened to better. I really think I should do that. And, you know, kind of shelved it, let it go aside. And then a couple of years after that, they hired a new middle manager 
So when I was working there, I had the most amazing boss, a real true leader of leaders. Most leaders are leaders of followers, right? They need sheep to follow them around. This right. boss of mine was a leader of leaders. He really knew how to cultivate leadership in others and was absolutely incredible. Experienced so much of the boss I am today to my own team comes from him. And I, I saw him uh, probably about a year and a half ago. I visited Jerusalem and I thanked him. I said, so much of who I am is due to your leadership. And, uh, but they hired this middle manager came between my boss and I, and this guy was just completely toxic, like a bull in a china shop, just started breaking everything, no real understanding, both insecure and egotistical at the same time. You could tell I really liked him. Um, and we didn't get along because he looked at me as like threat numero uno for good reason, right? Because I knew what a moron he was. I was like, I know everything you're doing wrong, just by right. the way. Um, so he was awful and I would be in tears on almost a daily basis. It was horrible. Um, and he he kind of, he didn't say it exactly these words, but basically he's like, okay, SD, your team is now my team and you're my new secretary. I'm like, no, no, <sighs> let me explain. I'm the CIO. I manage a team of people and I do all these things. He's like, no, that's going to be my job now. You'll be like my assistant and your team is my team. I'm like, all right, I'm the new leaving person. All right. We're done. Like we're just right. Done. Oh my God. That, oh, that, that was kind of it, you know, and it, there's it's more to the story, but that was kind of what happened. Just, it got to this point where it was completely unsustainable. It was so intense. It really, one night actually, so I already told you I come from this abusive background. So like so many abused children, I have this intense commitment to my children and my family, you know, to be the best kind of parent I could possibly be, the exact opposite I grew up with, blah, 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 you know, the drill. Um, and so bedtime with my kids was always sacred. No matter how hard I worked, I'd work days, I'd work nights when they were sleeping, but bedtime was sacred time. And one night during bedtime prayers, my phone rang. The fact that it was even with me was unusual because I would never have my phone with me. I had this phone in the closet roll for more years than just now. And uh, I answered it because it was one of my coworkers with the latest and not greatest thing that new toxic middle manager had done. And we're like, you know, hashing it out. And my husband comes in and he looks at me and it wasn't about like interrupting prayers. That wasn't the issue, right? He knew who I was, what I wanted to be. And he just looked at me, he's like, Esty, quit. Just quit tonight. That's it. This is done. This is not who you are. It's not who you want to be. And he was right. right? It had gotten to the point where I had completely overtaken my life and my sanity and, and what I wanted for my life. The fact that I was interrupting something that was so sacred to me for just, just drama. That's all it was. There was no practical application in that phone call. It was just more drama. Um, and I quit that night. I sent in my resignation via email. Wow. When things like that happen, I think that there is an instinct to kind of be like, we need to fix this situation. And that middle manager needs to know that he's a moron. And someone needs to kind of figure out why this is going wrong and remove the toxic people. And instead of doing that, you did the best you could and you removed yourself from that situation. Sounds like you were at a point when that was the only option that you yeah, had. I tried the other stuff first. Don't worry. I really tried talking sense into other people, but it was a nonprofit and nonprofits aren't run by the people who run them. It's run by their board of directors and their donors. And those are the people who wanted this guy in. And the fact that he was non-functional and got fired two years later after he made a giant mess didn't matter. Right. At that point, they wanted him in and there was nobody to talk to. Yikes. I so only you lasted six months with him there. Not even. Wow. Wow. Not even. Yikes, this must have been like a great aim idiot. Yeah, um, he's, he, you want to know the best part? Here's the best, best part. Because these people, and this is just something, you know, I've learned so much in dealing with people. They don't do it on purpose. And they're so not self-aware. So after he was fired and I was already stable in my business and had a bit of a name already, I met him at one of these big networking events. 
Okay. For business owners. Mm -hmm. And he meets me and he's like, Esty, do you remember me from X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, yeah. Like, could I forget you really? And he's like, you know, SD, I don't know if you know, I left. I'm like, yeah, I know all the drama. I know what it means. You left, whatever. Right. Um, I'm still in touch with my old coworkers. Right. Um, he's like, I left there, you know, and now I'm doing some freelance work. Maybe you have some recommendations for me. I hear you really making a name for yourself out here. And I, <laughs> I couldn't make this up. Okay. I could not, I could not. Cause I could never dream that that would happen. And I just looked at him and I was like, you know, I, I don't know. I'll have to think about it. Let, let me take your card and um, yeah, maybe we'll be in touch. Because <laughs> you know? to blast so him close. at that point, be like, you idiot. Do you know how much you ruined my life? Do you know how right. many days I cried? Do you know how many months I curled up in a little ball in my bed after leaving that job that was my entire life and then trying to make it in my own business and supporting my family almost single-handedly? Do you know what you did to me, you horrible, evil person? Um, but none of that would have been worth anything. He was so obviously clueless that he could meet me and be like, oh, hey, can you get me some work? That I, there was nothing, there was nothing else to say. Right. But wow. Right. The, you don't even know what you did at all. Right. You're, you're so ridiculously clueless. Yikes. So, so clueless, so not self-aware. I, I didn't, I didn't recommend anyone to him. I still think he's toxic. Human. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> do, I wouldn't do that either. So, so, oh my God, the the nerve there is like mind. But that's what I'm saying. It's not nerve. You know, I I talk so much. One of the bonuses in our marketing magic course is client management method. Right, so much about managing clients when you work in freelance, and again, when you have a product and a company. So it's working with your vendors and sometimes customer feedback, understanding where so, the other person is at. And their headspace is all the difference. You're, you're right. It's not. It's not nerve. It's just a complete. It, a complete it's lack of awareness. Yeah. Yeah. A complete it's just lack total of awareness and no animosity. Clearly, you know, right. at least he didn't have any to me. Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> none at all. Um, yikes. So you leave this completely toxic environment and then you start Strand Consulting. So uh, give me I like wish it was that simple. I wish oh, it was that simple. Okay. Give so, me like give me the Cliff Notes version of getting Strand off the ground. Yeah. The Cliff's Notes version is I took three different jobs. When I left, I took a job in a business brokerage firm, um, learning how to buy and sell and evaluate businesses. I took a job at MMA Global, which is the mobile marketing association doing sponsorship sales for their um, international conferences. And I tried to start doing my own business. And to be fair, I had already been doing it on the side. I had been doing private coaching. I had a, I got certified as a professional coach about two years, maybe three years, two or three years before I left my job. Cause I'd always, I'd always, um, I'd gone through so much therapy myself, but I knew I didn't want to be a therapist because I get very absorbed into other people's problems. And so when I learned about coaching before the coaching boom, when everyone in their pet puppy is a coach, I was like, this is what I want to do. I, I look at coaching as it's almost similar to therapy, except instead of digging deep, to fix you and get you to baseline. We take you where you are. We don't ignore where you've been, but we're always looking forward. We're always looking how to improve, how to get you to where you want to go. Again, we reference where you've been, but I don't dig. And so I'd already had some private coaching clients, um, even business coaching, just, you know, again, so many side businesses. And so I decided that I was going to expand that. So Strand started as one of three different things at the same time. And then it started building. So I first dropped the brokerage. I decided, I realized I really don't like 
brokerage, I need direct remuneration for my efforts. And brokerage is indirect. You can work hours and days and weeks on a deal for nothing. And then in like one hour, one meeting, you could close something massive. So some people love that. They love that gambling. I hated it. It did not suit my personality at all. So that I dropped first. And then as my business grew, I dropped the other thing until Strand became my full time for almost 10 years now. Wow. That's, I mean, the journey there is so, it's, it's complex. And I think that everyone's, everyone's stories are ultimately complex. And you, you know, you mentioned that you had reinvented yourself four or five times. And that's something that I think that we all do without realizing it. You know, there's your, everyone kind of likes to think of it in decades. You know, there's like your, your teens and then your twenties and your thirties and how, and the different places in your life that you are at every point. But I think what's really interesting about your story is not only that each, each step kind of fed the next and each one was kind of, I don't want to say necessary, but there, there's definitely some common themes there. No, Um, I think you could say necessary. I would not be who I was today if I had not been through everything I've been through. Every single bit of my life story has created the current reality. No question. Wow. That's, that's, oh, that's such a great way to kind of end off and, and leave off. And the last thing that I want to ask you, the last thing I want to close is, is I want to know from you, S.T. Rand, um, what does it mean to you to make an impact? <sighs> if one life has breathed easier because of me, that's an impact. Okay. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. It. I just, I want, I want, again, I want people to have that full balance, but if I can just Every person, and again, I, we're, we're not affecting singles, we're you know, affecting thousands into the tens of thousands at this point, but each life, to me, each life is an impact. Wow. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Essie. I really appreciate it. If people want to find out a little bit more about you and learn more about you and what you do, where can they find out more? Okay. So- If you go to sdrand.com slash free gift, you not only learn more about me, but you get a present. Um, At the moment, what's there is my five-day marketing success challenge where you learn the clarity and confidence to market yourself successfully. It's built for freelancers and small business owners, but I've actually had even employees go through it um, because of kind of marketing themselves in their career. So it kind of works for everything. Uh, It's very cool stuff. So if you go to sdrand.com slash free gift, you'll learn about me, more about my story, more about what I do, and you can have a present. And I do change it up every so often. So like if you go and that's not what's there, there'll be something else cool. But that's what I would say, sdrand.com. So it's E-S-T-I-E. R-A-N-D, you got to spell my name right, dot com slash free gift. Okay. And we will make sure to include that in the show notes so that everyone can benefit from that as well. Thank you so much, Esty, for taking the time to speak with me today. And I hope that everyone else benefit from this conversation as well. Have a good one. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. There's more information on Esty in the show notes, including that fabulous free gift. You can access those by swiping up on the cover art. This episode originally aired on November 11th, 2019. If you're listening around that time, you should know that there is a rare sale happening on impactfashionnyc.com. A direct link to the sale can also be found in the show notes. To hear more episodes, subscribe or head over to impactfashionnyc.com slash blog slash podcast. While you're there, feel free to check out what's new in the world of size inclusive modest fashion. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a quick rating. It really helps. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Etzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.